All right, welcome back to Community Church. We are very glad that you're here. So glad you could join us on a very crisp fall morning, but it's nice to see the weather change, those beautiful colors, and uh, just glad to have you here. Hope that you had a great week. Um, but we've sort of reached a bittersweet time in our study of the Gospel of Luke here, at least for me, okay, because we've actually come to the end of our study. This will be our last message in Luke's gospel. We're going to be looking at the last few verses here of Luke chapter 24, uh, particularly verses 44 through 53. So if you have your Bibles and would like to follow along, Luke 24, verses 44 through 53. Now, on the one hand, I'm sad that we're going to be leaving this very amazing book. But on the other hand, I'm super excited to be entering into our study of the book of Acts, where Dr. Luke is going to continue to guide us along this journey. And so just as he taught us all about the birth of Christ in his gospel, he's going to be teaching us about the birth of the church in his writing of the Acts of the Apostles. So very exciting stuff. And of course, this is going to, I think, continue to be quite a journey for us as well. But before we get into the book of Acts, we're going to actually take a Sunday, next Sunday, to look at Peter's restoration from John 21, because I think that's just a very important part of the gospel narrative overall. We don't want to leave that part out because the gospel is restorative. It restores us. It renews us. The gospel redeems, and what Christ done for Peter shows us a very practical way in how the gospel restores us. And so we'll look at that next week from John 21 if you'd like to read ahead. And then we're going to take one more Sunday to cover uh, our responsibility as believers for discipleship. And this will be in view of Christ's great commission to his disciples before his ascension here. That's going to be our main focus today. But once he commissions them, he commissions them to become disciple makers. And so we're going to look at discipleship in a couple of weeks as well. But this morning, we're going to see Christ actually open up the understanding of his disciples so that they can actually comprehend the scriptures. Because very shortly from now, he's going to commission them to preach the truth of who he is from the scriptures to all nations. And as we know, you and I, we're still living in between the two advents of Christ here. We're still living in that period between Christ's first advent and his return. And therefore, as believers, Today, we still have the same great commission as the disciples did, which is this. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Where? To every creature. That's how Mark wrote it in Mark 16, 15. So in a very real sense, we preach a global gospel. The good news is for everybody. and It's for everybody everywhere because Christ is the Lord of all. In other words, there are not many roads that lead to heaven. Christ himself said in, in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, just like we proclaimed through these bracelets Friday night at our community outreach, telling our community that there aren't many ways to heaven. There's one way, and that's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we preach, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, one Lord. That's what we preach. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all, meaning all who believe. And you'll remember from our studies that when Christ reappeared 
Matthew tells us in Matthew 28, 17, that when they, the disciples, saw Jesus post-resurrection, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. I'm thinking that was Thomas, right, who later did believe. There were probably others along with Thomas. But what we're going to see today in our study is that Christ actually gives divine understanding to those who do believe. And by his power and by his grace, he will actually open up the mind of a person to comprehend his own word if that person will believe by faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's what we preach. Would you pray with me again and we'll get into the text. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for the word of God, the very thing that we trust in, that we hang our hat on, that we drive our anchors into the ground in, so to speak, we, we stand upon the word of God, the unchanging, eternal word of God. So, Lord, as we look into it today, would you please open our own understanding? We believe. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding this morning. And we ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. So Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 44, reads like this. Then he said to them, he meaning Jesus, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Amen. So if you'd like to do a further comparison study here, you can find those passages in Mark chapter 16, verses 19 through 20, and then over in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. But Luke begins to end his gospel account by quoting these words from Christ in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. So, of course, Christ had told them who he was. He did so many times, and he did so while he was still with them, meaning in the flesh, pre-crucifixion, while he was literally in the process of fulfilling the law of Moses, while he was literally in the process of fulfilling the prophecies of the prophets, and the prophecies of the psalmist, and so on. Which, by the way, when you see that mentioned, when you see the law and the prophets and the psalms, those three divisions make up the entirety of the Old Testament at that time. So Christ is referencing everything that was written about him within the scriptures. Now remember Luke chapter 9, verse 22. This was after Christ had fed the 5,000. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. So that was just one of at least three different times that Christ 
had said this to his disciples. In Luke 18, 31, Jesus said very plainly, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things that are written by the prophets concerning me, the Son of Man, will be accomplished. And so here's what Christ is saying. He's saying, look, what y'all saw and heard over this past weekend, that's exactly what I've been telling you guys about this whole time. This is what the scriptures have been telling you about the entire time. All of this really happened and it took place over the weekend concerning me. Pretty fascinating stuff, really. The prophecies, we need to understand something about that. Prophecies are not guesses. Okay, prophecies are promises that are to be fulfilled. Think of it like this. Amos told us this in Amos 3, verse 7. He said, surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Did you know that? And so Christ is saying, guys, I am the fulfillment of all of those promises that have been made in the scriptures, in the prophets. I'm the one who fulfilled every prophecy that was written about the Messiah quite perfectly. That's the message that Christ is conveying. Another thing that we learn here, I think, is very important when you study your Bible. Biblical prophecy is fulfilled literally. Okay, Every single prophetic word about Christ the Messiah was fulfilled literally by Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have every reason to believe that every single prophecy about him in regard to his second coming will also be fulfilled literally. In other words, he will literally return in the clouds and call his church home, literally. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Christ will literally return to the earth to judge the world. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Christ will literally redeem a remnant of the believing Jews, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22, and Romans 9, 27. Again, Christ will literally reign from a throne in Jerusalem for 1,000 years, Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. And we could go on and on here, but we have no biblical leniency whatsoever to sort of spiritualize prophecy when we've seen it time after time after time fulfilled very literally. Verse 45, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Again, Matthew told us that when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, Matthew 28, 17. And so here, Christ is doing for all of his disciples what he had done for the two who were traveling along the road to Emmaus. And what is that? He opens up the word of God to them. He opens up their understanding so that they might comprehend the scriptures. I like what G. Campbell Morgan said here. He said, I do not know that there is any word in our language that may help us more than the word disentangled. That's a good word. Christ disentangled the scriptures to them. He says that's what he did for their minds. He freed them from all prejudice and all pride. And here I would take issue with Mr. Morgan. (laughs) I think Peter dealt with some prejudices. We'll see that worked out in the book of Acts later. But he said somehow he dealt with their mentality so that the picture blurred and indistinct was out of focus now came sharply into focus. And I like that word picture a lot. He's exactly right. They were confused, but now they comprehend the scriptures. As Matthew Henry said, the one thing that we need to be made to understand are the scriptures. Exactly right. If we don't get anything else in this life, let's understand this. 
Let's understand the word of God. Because the truth is a right belief, meaning a right understanding, if you will, that will lead us to right behavior, okay? So a right orthodoxy will necessarily lead us into a right orthopraxy. In other words, I can't live in the way that pleases Christ until I have come to faith in Christ. I have to believe rightly in order to behave rightly. So how critical is it that we understand the word of God the way that it's written? We mentioned in a previous passage uh, a week or so ago that there are two critical elements to understanding the Bible. And the first one is found in verse 25 here of Luke 24, and that's belief. We have to believe. Jesus reprimanded the two on the road to Emmaus for what? For being slow to believe. So we have to believe. We have to believe in what? We have to believe in all that the prophets have spoken in regard to Christ. We have to believe the word of God. That's the first critical element. The second critical element to understanding the Bible is we have to have divine understanding. We must have that. And that's what we see here in verse 45. Christ opened their mind. He opened their understanding so that they could comprehend the scriptures. Did you know that word comprehend, it literally means to bring together. That's what the word really means. Because if we don't understand, then we can't comprehend, right? In other words, if we don't have the mind of Christ through faith, we're never going to be able to bring the scriptures together in a way that makes any sense to us whatsoever. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. That means someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God, a lost person, someone who's not saved, they can't receive the things of God because he is spirit, right? For they are foolishness to him, nor can they know him because they are spiritually discerned. It's impossible to discern spiritual things without the Holy Spirit of God in you. Two verses later, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 2.16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So there it is. Believers, you have the mind of Christ so that you can get divine understanding. And of course, Proverbs 9.10 comes to mind here, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Right? So we must have the mind of Christ We must have the spirit of Christ in order to obtain this divine understanding. And that comes through belief, right? The two critical things to understanding the Bible. I want you to notice another progression here in the text. And this is pretty critical, I would say, for you you Bible students out there who want to get to know the word of God better. Look for progressions in the text. Okay, and here's one that we see very clearly. First, Christ opened the scriptures, verse 27. They needed to hear the word. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Very specific, Romans 10, 17. So he opened first to them the scriptures. That's the first step and the progression. Secondly, he opened their eyes. Verse 31, the word of God can open our eyes. That's what we learn about that. They needed to believe the word because Paul tells us very clearly this other progression that leads to salvation in Ephesians 1.13. In him you trusted when? After you heard the word of truth. So they had to hear the word, they had to believe the word, and Christ opened their eyes. The Bible is consistent with this progression all throughout both Testaments, in my opinion. We see this progression a lot. And Christ is teaching this here. The third thing he does is he opens their understanding. So first comes the scriptures, second comes their eyes, and then comes their understanding. 
So you can look at it like this. The progression goes, the word was taught, the word was heard, the word was believed, and finally the word was understood. And this is the progression we see all throughout Scripture and clearly what Christ is teaching his disciples. It's, con it's consistent with what he has taught everywhere in the word of God. We see some of this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where Paul writing says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Listen to verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Amen. Why, Paul? Well, he says that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? To those who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. And so what we see here in this text in Luke in verse 45 is this truth being worked out in real time in the life of of the disciples of Christ. They heard the word, they believed the word, and now they understand. Very cool. Verse 46. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Amen. Now, why was it necessary for Christ to suffer? Think about that. Immediately we think, well, because we're sinners and we needed a savior. Very true. But why, again, was it necessary for Christ to suffer? Look at verse 46. Because it had been written. Because it had been written. The word of God had been written, and therefore it was necessary for Christ, the word of God, to suffer. Right? Just as it was necessary for Christ, the word of God, to rise from the dead the third day. It had been written already. Therefore, it had to be done. Again, prophecies are not guesses, they are promises. It had to be done because it had to be written. Guys, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not an accident. It had been written. It had been written. His death was not some unfortunate event perpetrated by Satan. No, that Christ somehow through his own power overcame. No, it's, that's not the story. The cross was always God's plan to redeem our soul. It was God's plan the entire time. Where? From before the foundation of the world. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. So the cross was not the plan of Satan. The cross was not the plan of mankind. Scripture tells us that the cross is actually a mystery that is now being revealed. That's now being revealed. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. So it was God's plan all along to send his son to suffer the punishment of my sin. That should give you hope. Amen? It was written, therefore it was done. Peter would later get this very clearly. Uh, in fact, if you want a better understanding of the cross of Christ, if you'd like to do a study there, go read Peter's letters. They're fascinating in regard to the cross. The word of Christ as given to the prophets was fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And so just as Luke says here, the law showed us our need for Christ. The prophets and the poets, they told us about our Savior who would suffer for us. We see this in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, among many others. 
And they told us that once he suffered for our sins, that he would rise again from the dead the third day. And this is all throughout scripture, okay? We see it in Psalm 16. We see it in Jonah chapter 1, Hosea chapter 6, and we could go on and on, but it's all throughout Scripture. And the reason for his suffering and for his resurrection was that it had been written. But furthermore, Luke tells us this in verse 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So here we see the reason for Christ's suffering. We see the reason for the cross. So that sinners like me, sinners like you can be set free from our sin. Amen. So that we can have our sins remitted, the word says. That means pardoned if we repent, right? So Christ died so that you and I, lost sinners, could be born again, spiritually speaking. We could be redeemed. We could be forgiven. And he rose from the dead. Why? So that you and I could live eternally with him never to die again. Praise the Lord. You guys know the verse. This is all summed up in John 3.16, isn't it? We see it clearly in John 3.16. Why don't we say it together? For God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, whoever believes should not perish and have everlasting life. Amen. Praise the Lord. That is some very, very good news. Very good news. How beautiful is it too? Think about this. How beautiful is it that Christ first brought the good news of his gospel to the very city that had just rejected him and crucified him? Did you see that? Christ sent his messengers right back to ground zero, right back to where everything had just taken place, where it'd be the most difficult for them. That would be difficult for them to go back to Jerusalem. However, it would also be very good for them to go there because they could refute the lies that had already started leaking out from the chief priests and scribes that the disciples had stole the body. Christ sends them right back to ground zero. They could refute the lies. It's not going to be easy following Jesus. These guys are about to find that out. I'm sure some of you have had that same experience, right? As we've said from this pulpit many times, Christianity is hard. I'm probably not ever going to say it another way than that. It's difficult. Okay, and he might ask you to actually do some difficult things. He might ask you to do some very hard things. But here's what we know. Christ will go before us when he asks us to do these things, and he will be with us every step of the way, just like he is and always has been for his disciples. So will he be for you. But why Jerusalem again? Why send them immediately back to the very ones that hated him? Think of it another way. It might just be because you can reject Jesus Christ all you want to reject him. That is not going to change his mind and how he loves you. Jesus Christ loves you. He loves you and he loves his enemies with an unending and eternal love. Amen. What is it that you think Christ can't forgive you for? Is there something that you continue to beat yourself up about that you can't let go? Oh, God can never forgive me for that. No. What is it that you think would make you so unlovable to a God who gave his only begotten son because he loves you that much? And he loves the entire world. The son of God brought salvation to the entire world. By the way, it's the world you're living in. So you're included in that number. Jesus Christ not only loves you, 
he proved his love by dying on the cross for you. He actually demonstrated it. Paul tells us very clearly in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Christ, while on this earth, accomplished his Father's will quite perfectly. And so now what we see him begin to do is commission his people to go and to preach. Look again at verse 47. Preach what? What are we to preach? Repentance and remission of sins. We're not to preach a prosperity, health, and wealth baloney gospel. We are to preach repentance and remission of sins. How are we to preach this message? In his name. It says it right there in verse 47. We preach this in his name. Where are we to preach this? To all nations. And we start in Jerusalem. By the way, Union, Missouri... That's our Jerusalem. That's where we start. The summary of the entire Bible from front to back is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope you know that. And it's the story of man's responsibility to repent and to believe in that gospel. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay. And Christ has just boiled it down to that right there. Very simply. It's, it's really simple what he's teaching his people, his disciples. Here's the gospel. This is what we preach. Okay? It's that. So people often say, you know what? I don't read the Bible much. It's, it's pretty antiquated. Um, there's a lot of big words that I don't understand. It's just dry. I, you know, I get bored with it. I don't understand it. If that's where you're at today, then let me ask you another question. Did you understand what Jesus just said about preaching? what we are to preach, where we are to preach it, and how we are to preach it. Did you understand that? Because he just summed up the entirety of Scripture and what it teaches from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament in verses 46 and 47. By saying this, Christ died and he rose again, and you must repent of your sins and believe that by faith in order to have your sins remitted or forgiven. That's what Jesus said. That's not hard to understand. That's our message. That's the message of the church. That's the message of the Bible. So the question becomes now, it's not how, whether or not I can really understand that. It's pretty simple to understand. The question is, do I believe it? Do I believe that? Some of you might be thinking, all right, I hear what you're saying. Okay. I believe it. But what's repentance? Explain repentance. We are to preach repentance. I love Harry Ironside's definition of repentance. He said, repentance is the recognition of the disease that is destroying us. <laughs> what a great definition for repentance. Literally, to repent means to change your mind, metanoia, change your mind. So repentance is not a work. It's not a work. It's not anything that merits us salvation whatsoever. No, it's simply the recognition of my sin. And it's a change of mind that now agrees with the mind of God about my sin. That's what repentance is. It's the acknowledgement that, hey, I am a sinner and I am in desperate need of a Savior. And that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the only one who can ever remit or remove that sin. To remit, a thesis, it literally means to release from bondage or to release from imprisonment. 
That's what that word means. Guys, only Jesus Christ can release me from the bondage of my sin. That's the word picture here. In other words, if I turn from my sin, if I turn away from that, and by faith turn to Jesus in my repentance, then he will free me from the prison cell of my sin that I am currently living in. He will free me from that. And I will certainly die here if I don't repent, right? Therefore, as Christ said, preach this truth. Preach it. And preach it in my name. Because there is salvation in no other name. How critical is it that we get this message out? Again, Peter, he understood this quite plainly. We see him later on. We'll, we'll get here in our study through Acts. But think about this. Think about what Jesus is looking at Peter and saying right now and to all of them. And then now think about what Peter writes later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And by the way, Peter said this in Jerusalem in front of the Sanhedrin the ruling class of the Jews. He said this, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter got it. He understood that. Verse 48, and you are witnesses of these things. And so Christ again is using eyewitnesses to his life, to his death, burial and resurrection to now begin spreading the word, to spread the gospel of salvation to the nations. This word witness is interesting because it carries with it a double meaning, so to speak. I mean, to witness something can either mean that I have watched something with my eyes or it can mean that I have proclaimed something with my mouth. So that can, either way, uh, we can use that term witness. But for Christ's disciples, it was clearly both, wasn't it? They had seen him and, of course, they would later proclaim him. For you and me, we haven't seen him physically, but we have the word of the eyewitnesses. We have his eternal word. And so we have that along with our own testimony, and we witness by proclaiming with our mouth the things that the eyewitnesses have told us about concerning Christ. And so just as Christ told Thomas in John 20, verse 29, he said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And that's where you and I are today. We haven't physically seen Christ, but we have seen the evidence of Christ and we have his holy preserved eternal word that we can now proclaim. And so that's how we witness. And as we go and witness, you and I, we have the same assurance that Christ gave to his disciples, which is this. He's not going to leave us alone in this world to accomplish the Great Commission. We're not Lone Ranger Christians out there trying to accomplish this at all. Okay, he's not going to leave us alone as we try to get the gospel to the nations. There will be great power in us and through us. There is great power from his spirit, but great power in our testimony, just as there was great power in the testimony of Christ's disciples. And again, it's not because of anything that we have done, not at all. It's all because of the spirit of God inside us. Look at verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So what's the promise of my Father? That's the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit of God, right? This was also a promise, by the way, that had been made to them all throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. This shouldn't have been new information. Isaiah 44.3 says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, 
and floods on the dry ground, listen to this, I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27 said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Joel chapter two, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And so again, this is fulfillment. What Christ is saying is fulfillment of prophetic scripture. And by the way, Peter is going to quote from Joel chapter 2 in his amazing sermon at Pentecost. And we'll get there when we get to Acts chapter 2. But I think we should note something here. At some point during this discourse, we don't know when, but at some point during this discourse right here, Christ breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's according to John chapter 20, verse 22. What does that mean? Well, it necessarily means they would have been born again. They received his spirit. This is when they would have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, right? The promised one from verse 49. They would have been sealed at this point with the Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1, 13. And so when we get to Pentecost, as they tarry in the city of Jerusalem, that's when the Holy Spirit will come and endue them with power, from on high, not to save them, but why? In order to accomplish the task of preaching the gospel to the nations. That's the power they needed. You see, guys, our power to witness and carry out the work of Christ in this world, that's also a work of God. That's a work of God in us and through us. We have no power of our own to influence a dead heart to come to life. Nor do I possess the power within my own flesh to serve the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly as I should. But get this, the word of God, when it's preached in the name of Christ and through the power of his spirit, can accomplish all of that. Can accomplish all of that. So now we move into the ascension portion of the text in verse 50. Luke writing says, and he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. So he led them out, the word says. Out of what? Led them out of what? He led them out of the city that he was about to send them right back into. That's one thing. But when they go back, don't miss this, they will be different. They will have been changed, right? They will have received the Spirit of God. Christ led them out of the old, but he's sending them back as new. Praise the Lord for that. He's sending them back as new men with a new message that Jesus Christ alone can save. Look, Christ led them out of their old life and into their new eternal life. Why? So that they could spend the rest of their lives telling other people about Jesus and leading other people to Christ. That's why. And after that, it says he lifted up his hands. Christ led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands. These were the very hands that made their new life possible. The new life that they had just received, 
These hands made that possible. These are the hands that had been crucified and now had been risen from the dead as made evident by the scars that still remained in them. It was those hands that he lifted up toward heaven in victory. It was those hands that he pronounced blessing upon them with those nail-scarred, victorious hands. Morgan writes, While we see those uplifted hands, there can be no room for doubt or fear. When other menacing hands are stretched out to harm us or vex us, whether in life or death, in adversity or prosperity, in sorrow or joy, we know that by that token we are safe. Amen. Guys, when Jesus Christ blesses you, when Christ blesses you, as Spurgeon said, there is no power in heaven or earth or hell that can reverse that blessing. Amen. Ever. Guys, I want you to know this morning you are safe and you are secure in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ. The work has been done and now the blessing has been given and the commission has gone out. Christ led them out of Bethany, literally house of dates, Bethany was obviously a very important place to our Lord. He went there often. This was on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Christ had spent a lot of time there. He spent times of sorrow there. He spent times of great joy and celebration there. It was near Bethany where Christ was put into the olive press, as it were, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Christ, think about it, he now blesses his men from his own place of suffering and sorrow. That's where he lifts up his hands and pronounces blessing. But that's how it works, isn't it? Think that through, right? We are blessed because Christ has suffered. If he had not suffered for my sins, I would have no hope whatsoever for salvation from my sins. None. But I am blessed because he was broken. That's why. And as we know, because Christ has told us, Many times with blessing comes responsibility. We've talked about this. In other words, the responsibility for those who believe, those who have received the eternal blessing from Christ, is that we now take the truth of Christ into a world that does not believe. That's our calling. That's our commission. As verse 48 says, we are witnesses of these things. In other words, we have the responsibility to do this. And so in our next study, as we go through uh, the book of Acts, we're going to see this word witness pop up a lot. So we should get used to hearing it. We should get used to trying to understand what it means and what it means for me personally as a follower of Christ. Did you know that that word witness is used in one way or another 29 times in 28 chapters of Acts? 29. So I think that should tell us a great deal about our job our job description, if you will, as followers of Christ, right? We are what? Witnesses. We need to learn that. We're not judges. We're not judges. Okay, we don't go and judge a lost and unbelieving world. We can judge one another within the confines of the church as believers to keep each other accountable, but we are not judges of this world. Jesus is. That's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5. Amen. We're not policemen who run around and punish people. We're not church cops. We're not anything like that to a lost and unbelieving world or to the church. Jesus Christ is. The word of God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. What are we? 
witnesses. We are witnesses. And we are supposed to point people to Jesus Christ. Why? So that they can know how to be saved. We proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, being a witness doesn't mean we are wimpy. We proclaim something. Okay, we're not, you know, sort of offering. No, we're proclaiming the good news. This is true. We have courage because we know that it's true. We have conviction. We are witnesses. We're telling you the truth. We're not offering it to you. This is settled truth in heaven. That's what God's word says. So we are that kind of witness to an unbelieving world. Verse 51. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So Christ ascended into glory 40 days after his resurrection from the dead. We see that in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, which would tell us that his disciples would then have to remain in Jerusalem for 10 days, okay, until uh, Pentecost, which is the Jewish harvest festival. It's also called the Feast of Weeks. It's called Pentecost because penta means 50, and it happens 50 days after Passover. And Passover was the day that Christ was crucified. So they would have to remain for 10 days. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, that Christ was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight, and that I love this. This same Jesus who was taking up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Man, I love that. That's Acts chapter 1 verse 11. And so Paul would later confirm this as well when he wrote to the letter, his letter to the church in Thessalonica when speaking about the rapture of the church, the harpazo, the catching away, Paul would write this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 through 18. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. That's a promise. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Another promise. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. We shall be harpazo. We shall be in Latin rapturo, raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen. That's comforting news. <laughs> I am thankful that that is in the Bible. It comforts me to know that one day Christ is coming for me and he will take me out of this place into his place for all of eternity. Praise the Lord. But now as Christ ascends back to the Father, he ascends back home into the fullness of the glory that he occupied with the Father from before the foundation of the world and will occupy with the Father for all of eternity future. This is what's happening now. Think about this. This is a visible ascension into glory. That's important. The visible ascension of Christ is critical because it speaks to eternal life. Right? It speaks to the deity of Christ. In other words, Christ didn't just vanish like he did in verse 31. It wasn't like, hey, where's Jesus? He's right there. We watched this. We see this. Right? He visibly ascended in their sight. This was necessary also for Christ to return back to glory very visibly in front of them for two reasons, at least two reasons. One, this would bolster their faith, 
Okay, again, it's not like Jesus vanished. They can't find him anymore. Is he dead or alive? No, we've seen him the last time alive and ascending back into glory. Jesus is God. This bolsters their faith and it gives them eternal hope that they've seen this quite literally. The second thing it does is it increases their dependence. And by the way, our dependence on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is to come, right? What I mean is this. Now, because Christ is not walking on the earth physically with them or with us at this point, now we must walk in his spirit and by faith, trusting in his word. And the visible ascension of Christ is critical to all of this. Christ didn't disappear. <laughs> he ascended quite visibly. He is alive today. That's very important to our faith. Verse 52. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Man. I think it's significant here that these men worshiped because I think it tells us that now they believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God. Jesus is most definitely God. We've seen it with our own eyes. This is now settled truth for them, right? They're not debating about this anymore. They're not doubting. It's, it's settled in their hearts. And that's important because this will give them the resolve that they need to take the gospel to the nations. That's what you and I need is resolve in our heart settled truth. Like this is the word of God. This is truth. It's unchanging. I can stake my life on it. And so now I have the courage to go and proclaim that to those who don't believe. It's very important. This is settled truth. Now, something else to note here is that they worshiped, but when? After they were blessed. So worship follows Blessing. So Christ had blessed them, and now we see that they worship, and then something else happens after that. This is another progression that we're looking at in the text. Next, we see that obedience followed their worship. Very important. They were blessed by God. They worshiped God. Their worship led them to be obedient to God. Guys, what you worship is what you will obey. Okay? They worshiped Jesus. Therefore, they obeyed him. They worshiped Christ. Christ had told them in verse 49, go tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And so after they worshiped the Lord, what did they do? They left Bethany and they went back to Jerusalem because they were obedient. They did this in obedience to Christ. And now what were they gonna go do? They were gonna go worship while in Jerusalem, just like they were doing in Bethany, while they waited on the Lord for his promise of his Spirit. And lastly, we should point out that they did all of this. They, they were blessed. They, were, they worshiped. They were obedient. They did all of this, the word says, with great joy. <coughs> with great joy. That's so critical. Guys, my service to my king should never feel like a burden. It should never feel like a burden to serve Christ. Should never feel like a burden to worship the Lord. It should never feel like a burden to gather in his name. It should never feel like a burden to serve him in the church or to serve him with my giftings in, in the community. However, whatever he asked me to do should never be a burden. It should not be a burden for me to pray. It should not be a burden for me to read the Bible. It should not be a burden for me to witness. We've been talking about this, right? They did all of this with great joy. Serving Christ and walking in obedience to his word should bring me not just joy, 
great joy. That's where I should find all of the fulfillment for my soul. And that brings us to the final verse here in our study of Luke's gospel, verse 53, which says this. They were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. And so here we see that the same Lord who was at the table, you'll remember, opening their eyes, opening their understanding, that same Lord is the same Lord of the temple. The Lord around the table is the Lord at the temple. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. And the temple is where they worshiped him. The temple is where Christ received praise from his people, quite publicly, by the way, unashamed. They were not ashamed to do this. They were doing this with great joy. And they did this all after he had ascended back into glory. We should never be ashamed to continually praise and bless God, whether in the temple or around the table. Christ is Lord of both. Luke concludes his gospel account with one word by saying, amen. Amen. You know what that word means? So be it. Or so it is. He says, amen. And then there's a period at the end of that. I love that. Some of you guys who have been with us throughout the entire study will remember that Luke had begun his writing by saying, it seemed good to me, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write an orderly account. He said that in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. We have been through Luke's orderly account, all 24 chapters. And now after laying out this orderly account, after Luke laid out the facts concerning the life and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he makes one final very definitive statement. Amen. Amen. So it is. In other words, guys, this is how it is. <laughs> you want truth? It's right here. This is how it is. Because this is who Jesus was, and this is who Jesus is. These are facts. This is settled truth. Amen. So it is. right. The, order, the orderly account has now been laid out. Christ has given understanding to his disciples and so on. And so now the application for you and the application for me is after having heard the orderly account from Luke, who had, what did he say? Perfect understanding of all things from the beginning. After having heard all of that, and after having heard his definitive statement of this is how it is, do I believe that? Do I believe it? Guys, the message of Luke is consistent with all of Scripture. And here's the big message coming out of it. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 5. That lines up with the entirety of the text of the Bible. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel is. That's the good news. Jesus saves. So what I want you to take out of this book is that message, the gospel. Jesus saves sinners. That's the message, right? And here we also see the method that was given by Christ. The method is this, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
He tells us that in Mark 16, Luke 24, Matthew 28, John 20. It's in all the Gospels, the method. We call it the Great Commission, right? So we get the message. Now we have the method. Christ is our message, and you and I are the method to get that message to the world. That's how this works. So let me give you one last piece of advice here that my son-in-law Dylan gave me last week before I officiated Nathan and Aaron's wedding. He walks into the sanctuary, into the foyer there, walks right up to me and looks me straight in the eye, shakes my hand and says, don't mess this up. <laughs> great advice. That was some great advice. <laughs> Guys, let's not mess this up. This is the opportunity we've been given, right? This is the great commission to bring Christ to our community. Christ is our message. We are his messengers and Union, Missouri is our Jerusalem. We've heard the word. We believe the word. We understand the word. There's one step left. Let's go obey the word. We love you, Lord, and thank you for this time together as your church. Lord, please get the message, get the truth of this message off of the page and into our heart. Help us to understand it quite intimately in a way that will help us to live different. Lord, we need courage. We need the strength that you, only, that you provide only through your spirit in order to accomplish the task that you've given us. And we know your promises. We know that you will go before us and you will go with us and you will strengthen us for this calling. So it's up to us, ultimately, at this point, what will we do with that? We say we believe it, but are we going to obey it? We know the message, but are we too shy to be a part of the method of getting the message to the world? So I pray that you would help us, Lord, each and every one in our own context, wherever we are in our walk with you, to take that next step of faith. Maybe it's witnessing to somebody in our family. Maybe it's witnessing to somebody at work. Maybe it's starting with more time in prayer and more time in your word. I don't know. Whatever we need to do to be obedient to your call, to be obedient to the great commission of getting Christ to the nations, help us to be willing to do that. We know that you're going to equip us for this task. So help us to walk by faith, believing in the promises that you've given to us to accomplish this. Lord, please bless your church that we might be a blessing to others. We want to see many people come to faith in Jesus. And beyond that, we want to see many people grow to maturity in Christ. To learn how to love you and lead their homes well. To learn how to lead their communities well. To learn how to serve you to the best of their ability based on the gifts and talents that you've given them. We want to see people grow up in their faith. So help us to not stop our discipleship at evangelism. Help us to carry it through with the teaching and preaching and education of your word. Thank you for this privilege. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given to us, Lord. If there's somebody hearing this message, maybe they heard the gospel for the first time. Maybe what they needed today was to hear the word of God so that they can believe it. And if that's you today, then I'm just going to ask you to take that next step of faith. You've heard the word of God. You've heard the truth about Jesus Christ. He is the son of God who died for your sins and rose again so that you could have hope, eternal hope in him. Do you believe that? Would you believe that? 
I hope that you will. So Lord, during our time of worship here, as we conclude the service today, Lord, please make your presence known. Work in our hearts, changing us and conforming us into the likeness of Christ our Lord, because it's you alone that we serve. Would you do that for us today? We ask it in faith and we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.